Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we uh, work our way forward through the Ten Commandments, uh, there are a couple of things that are hopefully becoming increasingly clear and obvious to us. One of these is that these commandments clearly go a lot deeper than just the surface issue, the surface sin that is mentioned in the commandment. And when we first read the Ten Commandments, it might be possible for us to read them and say, hey, I'm not doing too bad on these things. Look at the commandment, you shall not murder. On the surface, I imagine most of us can check that one off. But as we dig deeper and take the time to reflect on these commandments, uh, what we've been discovering is they go a lot deeper than just the surface issue. They speak to our culture. They speak also to our hearts. And we discover as we meditate on these that there, there's a whole world of sin and a world of desire within each one of us that leads to these sins that God intends to confront. Uh, and that's good that we begin to see that. That's really the whole purpose of why we take this time every year to work through the Ten Commandments. Because we know it is God's purpose, as we've said over and over, for, for us to be set free. And set free not just from the surface sin, but from all of the underlying desires and delusions that lead to that sin. Uh, now, as we uncover that, as we discover that truth, uh, what we begin to, uh, and, and we begin to realize the, the things that live within us that lead to these sins, it's going to be all the more important for us to stand firmly on the foundation of the gospel. Uh, because otherwise what happens is we will inevitably begin to, uh, as we cannot stand the sight of our sin and we don't know how to how to deal with that in light of the gospel we inevitably begin to excuse ourselves or to minimize our sin or to tune out on god's word as god's word sheds light on these things because we've been trusting in this lie that we are after all pretty good people and god's word is exposing uh, that as a lie if we've been standing on a foundation of, of self-righteousness and pride thus far as we've gone through the commandments, uh, we'll find ourselves increasingly uncomfortable and we'll be looking for escape routes. And, and we, mean, we need to make sure that that's not how we deal with the Ten Commandments. If we want to get anywhere at all in terms of growing in, in the appreciation for God's word, growing in life, we need to stand firm on the foundation of the gospel. Uh, it, it can be a painful thing to see sin exposed in our life. We must run to the gospel to deal with that and continue to grow. Uh, secondly, something else that we've hopefully begun to see uh, as we've worked through the commandments is that for every prohibition, most of the law is composed of prohibitions, you shall not. Uh, for every prohibition, there is a corresponding command uh, or, or something good that God is seeking to preserve or uh, commend to us. Uh, so our goal as we, as we work through the commandments is not just to remove what is unholy, but also to experience a renewal of our minds and a renewal of our hearts to begin to see what is good and to love what is good and then to learn to practice what is good. Uh, the things that God has created us for and now also saved us for and called us to. With that being said, then, those, those two principles, our goal for this afternoon is then to hear God speak to us on this commandment, you shall not kill or you shall not murder. 
Uh, to understand this commandment, we, we probably want to begin by laying a foundation, thinking about the reason why this commandment exists, which is that human life is uniquely sacred to God. Uh, man is made in God's image, which means human life is sacred to God. Uh, this is Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. What this means is, uh, then, that we are made in the image of God. It means we, we bear the unique status of being children of God. That's what this, this term, image of God, means. We are made to reflect the character and heart and identity of our Father in, in a unique and special way that the animals never can. We bear his likeness. And you see this in other places as well, uh, in the Apostle Paul's sermon to the Athenians in Acts 17, uh, where he's speaking here to unbelievers even, to, to the Greeks there. Uh, he says, In him, in God, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. It speaks to that same concept. We are the children of God. In the same way, the gospel, uh, according to Luke, traces out the lineage of the Lord Jesus uh, going back all the way to, to Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Uh, by being human, you bear a special status as, as a, a child of God. Uh, so this, this phrase then, made in the image of God, refers to that, that special status that we have simply as human beings. Now, with that status come some unique gifts uh, that distinguish us from the animals. The philosophers have spoken much about this in, in uh, centuries past, gifts of intellect, gifts of uh, reason, uh, gifts of spirituality or an inborn sense of right and wrong. All of these are unique gifts the animals do not possess that we are given as, as children of God. It's important as we think about that, though, not to confuse the gifts that we have with the identity that we have. It is not that we are special because we have these gifts. We have these gifts because we are special. This means that if, if someone does not possess these gifts, if someone loses his intellect, uh, he, he does not cease to be an image bearer of God. Uh, likewise, that identity of, of offspring of God comes with a unique calling. You see that as well in, in Genesis 1. A calling to be righteous and holy, to be like God in that respect, and a calling to fill the earth and rule over it and have dominion. This too comes out of our identity. And this too we should not confuse with the status itself. It is not because we have dominion that we are children of God, but we have dominion because we are children of God. Now when we understand that then, we can begin to understand why God hates murder with such a special, unique hatred. The killing of another person is the killing of God's children. It is the desecration or vandalism of God's image. God has set human life as uniquely uh, holy and set apart for him and precious that cannot be violated by anybody. 
You see this as well in Genesis 9. This is after the flood, so now after uh, the, the fall into sin and even uh, after the point where man had become so perverse that God had sent a flood to, to wash mankind off of the face of, of the earth. And there we see, despite the prohibition of murder, God reserves the right to take human life. God and God alone can take human life. The one who builds his images can take them down. Uh, but then after, after the flood and God still acknowledges that, that the human race is still so committed to evil that they, they cannot do anything else. And yet even there you see again the special status of image bearers of God reaffirmed. Uh, you see it, Genesis 9, verse 6, uh, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And what we see then is, despite our sin, despite the fact that we have fallen from God uh, in, in uncountable ways, we've desecrated that image on our very selves, yet God does not remove from mankind that unique identity that we possess as children or offspring of God. God continues to affirm the unique value and sanctity of human life such that he even imposes on, on the crime of murder the highest possible punishment, the penalty of death. Now, those who take the life of another person, God regards as having, uh, having uh, put themselves into a debt that cannot be paid on earth, that can only be paid by their own blood being shed. This is the position that, too, the Christian church must always uphold. It is not just a, a political opinion on the death penalty. It's not just a personal preference. This is a, a, a scriptural teaching. It's a command of God. It, it, it's repeated in the New Testament, too. Paul says in Romans 13, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. Uh, it is a sin and an offense before God for any country to abolish the death penalty. It ultimately downgrades the price of human life that God himself has set. In this light, we can give thanks. Perhaps some of you noticed the U.S. federal government last week began to reimpose or at least re finally resume the use of the death penalty. Now, we can lament it still takes decades and decades before justice is carried out, but that's something we want to pray for, that, that governments would see the value of human life, the sacred status that human beings bear, and honor that uh, by carrying out the penalty that God uh, has imposed. Uh, sometimes it's been argued in the, in the pro-life community uh, that, that it's, it's against pro-life values to be for the death penalty. Uh, I've even heard some sermons to that effect. Uh, but this really misses the point. Uh, as Christians... We oppose abortion and we are in favor of the death penalty for exactly the same reason, precisely because human life is sacred to God. Uh, if it's violated, a debt is owed to God that will not be paid on this earth. God demands the life of the murderer in payment. And you see this as well in the text we read from uh, Numbers 35. Uh, any crime that, in, that required the death penalty could still be ransomed. You could still pay a ransom. So you think of uh, adultery, for example, also required the death penalty, but there was the possibility of, of the adulterer uh, being ransomed. Uh, but God makes a clear exception here for the sin of murder that there is to be no possibility for ransom. Uh, number 35, 31, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. He shall be put to death. Uh, moreover, 
so highly does God regard uh, human life that even those who accidentally took the life of another person would still face lifelong consequences for having done so. This is something God insists on being taken very seriously. Uh, God provided then cities of refuge to which uh, someone could flee if they had accidentally uh, killed another person. Uh, There in the city of refuge, they were still to receive a fair trial, uh, whether it was indeed accidental or not. Uh, And if it turns out that it was intentional, then they were to be taken out of the city of refuge and put to death. But even if it was accidental, the, the law required they remain in the city of refuge for the rest of the life of the high priest. Uh, this is something God wanted his people to take with the utmost seriousness. And we might think of similar uh, implications in our own day. If, if, if you were to kill someone by texting and driving, uh, and, and it's accidental, you didn't mean to kill them, you will face lifelong consequences for it, and you should. Uh, The sin can still be forgiven. There's no sin that God does not forgive. But the consequences will remain for the remainder of your life. So that's the reason then underlying this commandment. God forbids murder because God created us in his image with unique identity and honor. Taking human life is the gravest insult to the image of God himself. But now look around us, right? We live in a culture that's infatuated with death. Uh, We live in a world that's marked by death and murder and a culture that has given itself over to a love of death. Uh, To turn from God is to embrace death. You see this already in the fall of Adam and Eve. As soon as they fell into sin, not only did they, they bring upon themselves shame and guilt for their sin, but they also plunged themselves into hatred and death. When God finds them in the garden hiding from him, uh, and he asks them uh, whether they've taken the fruit that was forbidden, uh, what does Adam do? Uh, Instead of protecting uh, his wife and taking responsibility for his wife, instead he blames her. He says, the woman that you gave me, she, she gave it to me and I ate, saying in effect, I hate her. It's her fault. Take her life so that I might live. Their their relationship between husband and wife is thus ruined. And it only gets worse. You turn a chapter later and what do you find? You find Cain killing his brother Abel out of envy. To turn from God is to turn to hatred and death. When we don't honor God, what we end up doing is we put ourselves on God's throne. Uh, And then when we do that, every other person becomes either an obstacle or a means to our ends. Uh, We are gods to ourselves. And if we no longer love God, how could we love those who are made in God's image? Uh, So people become a a means to to our ends. We use people and abuse people, or they become obstacles that we must destroy. Our hearts are filled with hatred, and malice for one another. It's what Paul says uh, to, to, I believe, Titus. Uh, we, before we were saved, were uh, hated and hating one another. We disregard the needs of other people. We disrespect and dishonor other people. Uh, we degrade human life, and not just with our actions, but also with our words. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 about corrupting talk or degrading talk. It's talk that degrades the life of others. Uh, we murder with our words. 
As the Lord Jesus also taught us as we read, anyone who says, you fool, uh, which is equivalent in our day to phrases like stupid or you idiot, uh, these are, these are uh, things that are liable for the sin of murder. Uh, we fight, we quarrel, James 4, because we hate one another. We commit the sin of murder, each of us chasing after his own greed, his own lust, being, trying to be a god unto himself. And then given the right opportunity, we will go all the way and commit the sin of murder. This overflows, you see it in the human race, it overflows into uh, abuse, violence, and murder. And that's the world we live in, a world that throughout history has been marked in every generation by violence, genocide, warfare, and murder. And you see this so clearly in our own culture as well, a culture that has a terrible love affair with death, uh, where human life is valued only for its utility. When you cease to be useful, your life ceases to have value. So the life and dignity of the elderly, of the mentally handicapped, of the unborn is is degraded uh, and violated. We're a culture with blood on our hands and with murder in our hearts. Uh, Even our our, our view in our culture, our culture's view of life, of our own life uh, and our own dignity is also distorted and perverted in the fallen sin. You hear expressions like, like YOLO, you only live once, uh, with this implication that you've you got to just get the most for yourself out of this life. It's a consumeristic attitude towards life. Uh, we we want to suck all that we can out of life. Uh, it's not an attitude of we want to be fruitful, we want to leave something, we want to leave a legacy, but rather we want to consume, to get, uh, to possess uh, and, and, and the works of darkness that this world engages in, they all lead to one end, that is death. Uh, the way of life for the wicked uh, is destructive for their own bodies, for their own minds, and for their own souls. Uh, a life of partying all night, a life of substance abuse, uh, a life of reckless sexual behavior, all of it leading to death, degrading and devaluing one's own life, the life of others, uh, and, and ultimately uh, leading to death. Uh, in all these ways, then we, we place ourselves on the throne of God, and we, and we end up desecrating, violating the image of God in others. It's like spitting in the face of God who made us by, by violating, vandalizing his image. Uh, and, and we cannot begin to comprehend then the wrath of God against the human race uh, for not only committing such sins, but for cherishing such things uh, in our hearts. And now, brothers and sisters, we need to remember, again, the gospel, right? We need to remember it is into this world that Jesus came uh, as a baby, exposed to danger, uh, exposed to attempts uh, to murder him. And it's for the life and salvation of this world uh, that, Christ ki- that Christ came to die, the death of a murderer, a death on a cross that murderers alone deserve. Uh, And he died at the hands of murderers and in the place of uh, Barabbas, a murderer, to give his life as a payment for the hatred and the murder of this world. And and through him, every believer, including murderers, including those who are guilty of of the extreme sin of murder, uh, uh, as well as all of us whose hearts are filled with envy, greed, hatred, uh, degrading the lives of others, we who've desecrated the image of God, are reconciled to the God that we've sinned against through the death of the Son of God. And so the gospel call goes out to murderers, to all of us who violated God's image, uh, to to believe in Him and find our only redemption and hope in Him. And, And when we do this, when we believe in Him, 
he also sends us his spirit to lead us away from that life that heads to death, that life that's in love with death, to lead us to a new life, a life that is truly life. We sang about that in Psalm 36, in God is the fount of life. Uh, by turning to him, we rediscover what it means to live and what it means to love life. And so this is where we want to end. We, we who belong to Christ were also renewed by him and called out of death and into life. What does that look like now with respect to the sixth commandment? It means as Christians in the first place that we will not glorify or celebrate death the way that the world does. We have no business and no share in, in the gratuitous violence uh, and gore that our world enjoys, particularly here thinking in, in terms of entertainment. I'm not talking here about movies that, that portray the reality, the horrifying reality of war. Uh, sometimes those can be uh, useful. But we're thinking here of movies and games that celebrate war, that celebrate violence for the sake of violence. We have no business with that kind of stuff as Christians. Uh, nor do we celebrate death, even the death of the wicked. Although we might pray to God for, uh, for God to deal out justice on the wicked, and we might also thank God when he does so. Uh, when terrorists are, are caught and killed, this is something we give thanks to God for. But we do so with sober hearts. We do so knowing, there go I, but for the grace of God. Uh, we, we do so reflecting on the heart of our Father God who himself says, he does not rejoice in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his ways and live. This also means... More practically, we also uh, are called to forsake all envy, hatred, and desire of revenge as we recognize these things do exist in our own hearts. Uh, though the same temptations that face Cain uh, and, and faced uh, every murderer do creep up in our hearts as well, we recognize them now as Christians for what they are. These are the works of darkness. Uh, when I face this in my own heart, this envy, this hatred, this desire for revenge, when I find that in my heart, I am called to put that to death. It cannot stay in me. This also means uh, thinking of, of the sin of Adam and Eve putting themselves on the throne of God in the first place, that we humble ourselves before God. We recognize we are not God. Uh, he is God, and we will not sit upon his throne. One of the practical outworkings of this is in the realm of anger. Anger, uh, unrighteous anger, always comes from believing that we get to sit on the throne of God and that those who violate our will ought to experience our wrath. This is why the Catechism mentions anger uh, as, as something we're called to forsake. Uh, it doesn't even mention, though it could, that there, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Uh, but righteous anger always heads in the direction of mercy. Uh, righteous anger always desires life. It's constructive rather than destructive. Uh, and it's holy, which we as sinners are not. Uh, we do not cherish anger, therefore, within our hearts. Uh, scripture does permit us to be angry in the proper time. But even then, even then with righteous anger, we're still called, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, that's Ephesians 4. Uh, that's how quickly our anger, which may have started righteous, morphs into something that is no longer righteous. The Apostle James likewise warns us uh, that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So those Christians who, who cherish anger in their hearts, who hold grudges, who, who remain bitter, 
They're putting their very souls in danger. Christ warned us uh, with the utmost strictness, if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. How how we judge others is how we will be judged. Additionally, as, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, we forsake every degrading word and thought. It's not just what we, what we do, it's what we say and what we think. Uh, anything that insults the image of God in our fellow man. It's unfortunate. It's heard all too often, including within our circles, words like idiot and stupid that are thrown around casually to degrade the image of man, particularly those who are in positions of, of political power. There is a proper place for such words. Scripture does speak of the fool. Uh, you could translate that as idiot if you wanted. Uh, the fool who says that there's no God or the stupidity of worshiping other, uh, worshiping other gods. But these words are not to be thrown around. They are not to be used casually, but to be spoken with sobriety and sincerity and given to, to correct evil and to restore what is good. Every word that degrades the image of God in our fellow man, uh, obscenities that insult the dignity or or value of others, crude words that that degrade the body parts of others, these have no place in the life and on the lips of Christians. Paul says, uh, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Now, that that corrupting talk, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, that he's referring to, uh, is all that that insults and degrades. Phrases like calling someone a piece of trash or or worse than that uh, have no place on the lips of the children of God. It's degrading, corrupting talk. No matter how evil a sinner might be, they are still endowed with dignity uh, as, as image bearers of God that in that respect requires our respect. No matter how sinful or foolish or evil they might be, they are still an image bearer of God. We might judge their sin, but we leave it to God to judge the image bearer himself. Uh, Not only do we forsake the kingdom of death uh, in all these ways, but then we're also called to live as children of God and as children of life. And as as we do so, then we want to honor, celebrate, and love life. Uh, Because we love God, we are called to not only not hate our neighbor, but to love uh, and respect and honor the image of God in every other human being, uh, no matter how different from, from us they might be, what, whatever race uh, or, or ideology uh, or, or sin or history. They are made in God's image. So we honor them, we respect them, and we guard their lives uh, and, and their dignity as something that's precious uh, and honorable. It also means that we always choose life. We always want to promote life over against our culture of death. And not only as Christians do we stand in opposition to abortion and to euthanasia, but we also do what we can to protect and to care for the defenseless, the unwanted, and the despised. In the ancient Roman world, uh, infants were not only murdered in the womb as, as they are in our culture, they were also often left in the streets to die or to be picked up by slave traders uh, and sold as slaves. And the Christians were the first to go into the streets to find the unwanted infants and to take them in and love them. We love the unwanted and the despised. In this way, we imitate our Father's heart, right? Who loved the unwanted and the despised. We want to take every opportunity to use our homes and our financial resources uh, and our time to to extend love and mercy, reflecting the love and mercy of our Father God. 
And we also celebrate life by following God's call to be fruitful and multiply. Now you see this not only in, in the creation mandate, you see it repeated again in Genesis 9, where God says to Noah and his descendants, now be fruitful and multiply. Uh, as we saw last week or, or two weeks ago when dealing with the fifth commandment, our culture sees children as a burden. God calls us to see them as a blessing, and we want to cherish and honor that blessing. And then finally, we want to love one another, particularly in the church. There of all places, the love of God, the life-giving love of God ought to be visible. It's what we read about in John 3, uh, 11 to 15. Uh, the easiest way to tell that someone has passed from death to life, he says, is when we love one another. We give up grudges. We go out of our way to forgive and reconcile. We seek peace and we desire opportunity to be restored. Uh, we refuse the impulse that I think lives within all of us, the impulse to write one another off when, when offended. We refuse that impulse. We cover offenses in love. We treat each other as Christ treats us with mercy and compassion. And Christ calls us then to extend that love not only to our brothers, but also to our enemies, because that's what he did, loving his enemies. Uh, by, by enemies, uh, when, when the scripture speaks of loving your enemies, it doesn't only mean uh, those enemies that literally want to kill you, uh, but, but all of those who, who, who don't like you, or, or those who insult you, or those who treat you unfairly, or those who spread rumors uh, about you. We follow the heart of Christ here in showing love and kindness to such enemies. And we speak words of peace to those who insult us. We pray for their repentance and their healing. And we show kindness and mercy whenever we have the opportunity, and we absolutely forsake the path of bitterness or drama or grudges or revenge. We're reminded in Romans 12, God is the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So when we trust in that promise, we turn the other cheek, as the Lord Jesus teaches us. We endure offenses for the sake of, uh, of winning the hearts of those who've offended us. It's like Exodus 23 teaches, if you see your enemy's ox or donkey fall into a pit or fall under its burden, and you can apply the, the image to, to contemporary terms, then we bring that donkey back to them. If we see them in need, we remember that need before God. We, we pray for them. We consider how we might also help them. So we learn to love, as John says, not just in words, but in deeds. And we trust the promise of Christ that he said elsewhere, that as surely as you did this, for the least one of these, you did this also for me. And we see this illustrated so beautifully in baptism. God loves the unloved. God loves sinners. God loves those who were cast off to bring them back to himself, to say, I am your God. I am your Father. I will love you. I will heal you. I will take you into eternity with myself. Amen. Let's respond to the word of God by singing together.